We may think that non-violent communication means a technique to end disagreements. It is not. In fact, it is a method designed to increase empathy and to improve the quality of life of those who practice this method as well as the people around them. Maria Arpa shares a simple lesson on how to have non-violent communication and challenge our unconscious biases. The key, she says, is to unlock your heart so that other people would unlock their heart. It has to begin with us. This is Between Us, Stories of Unconscious Bias. I am Smitha Tharoor. Hello, I'd like to introduce Maria Arpa. Maria is the founder of the Center for Peaceful Solutions and the executive director at the Center for Nonviolent Communication. She has dedicated the last 20 years of her life in promotion of nonviolent communication as an alternative to mainstream systems of domination culture. Maria has worked in some of the most high violent areas in the UK and the USA with schools, prisons, families, neighborhoods and workplaces. I am so pleased that Maria has joined me to share her stories on unconscious bias because I know that she will have many, many stories that will be of interest to all of us. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Smitha. This is really wonderful to be invited to um, talk to you about this subject. So before we even start sharing stories, Maria, you know, we're talking about unconscious bias. How do you understand that? Um, I think I'm still learning. So I think I want to say that I don't have a, a, a you know, a complete definition. Um, but if I had to put something into words, it's that realisation that we have judgments and labels about people that come from folklore, storytelling, cultural environment that we don't realise are, are influencing how we connect with other people, either as a positive bias or a negative bias so that's how i understand it and no, that's um, that's beautiful i i totally get that and i'm i'm really curious to uh, to hear you using words like folklore and stories and so on what does that mean why i'm just curious to know why you chose those words and what you mean by that well i mean clearly i knew that i was going to be doing this podcast with you and clearly i've been reflecting and giving it some thought and so I think where I'd love to start, if it's OK with you, is to talk about my own upbringing. Oh, please. And, I would like how... that very much. Thank you. So um, so I'm actually uh, was born and brought up in London, um, but both my parents are Maltese and I identify as being Maltese. But I was brought up by parents who went through a hard time in World War Two and then came to the UK and Malta played a really big part in World War II. And in fact, as a country, it was awarded the George Cross. And so I was brought up by parents who um, told me a lot of stories about our Maltese heritage in ways that were derogatory to other cultures and other people. So, for example, um, because during World War II, 
Italy was not on the same side of the war, um, I had a lot of stories about Italian people, um, a lot of stories about <clears throat> being Maltese and how that differentiated us because we were British, that differentiated us from other Mediterranean countries and a lot of kind of pride around that we were better than other people. Um, and I think one of the one of the stories or or actually cultural environment that you know I've spent a lot of time unraveling is um I had an uncle, my mother's brother, who was married to a Turkish woman. And this was the worst possible outcome for my mum, because apparently in the 1500s there was a massive war between Malta and Turkey. And so therefore, Turkish people were to be universally despised. And the reason I'm telling you those stories is because, you know, when you're a child, you're really impressionable. And one of the things that's really important is it's not it's not the stories or what you see or 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 what happens, because the world is never going to be a fair place. It's how you're taught to interpret that stuff. And most children are left to their own devices to figure out what that means. And so, of course, I didn't realize, I had no idea that I was holding these prejudices against other people. It, it wasn't, you know, until way, way, way into my sort of 40s when I began doing this work did I even realize that these prejudices were affecting the way I recruited people for the business I was running, that these prejudices affected, you know, who I would do business with. And so I guess that's for me why I, I set a lot of importance around stories and folklore and the cultural environment. Oh, I think that's a that's a beautiful story you've shared. Uh, and I'm amused and moved at the same time. And I say amused, not not in terms of being derogatory, but the fact that something that happened in the 15th century can go through generations uh, and and it, it is folklore it's it's, it's a, it, it we don't even know the level of facts uh, yeah. unless you've gone and looked and poured through the history books and yet generations keep believing this is how it ought to be mm. and then it gets embedded and of course what's moving and powerful uh, 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 alongside that is the point that you're making which is so much about the fact that our parenting, for those of us who are listening to our parents ourselves, what kind of influence do we have on our little children? And how, growing up for you, these stories were just embedded in you. I mean, you, you said it so brilliantly, Maria, that they just let you leave you alone. They tell you these stories and then they leave you to figure it out. And it just kind of becomes part of your DNA. And you're telling me that it's in your 40s, you're looking back and thinking, hang on a minute, that doesn't make sense. Why did I even think that? And then you start questioning and acknowledging and recognizing um, the folklore and the experiences that you had. That's fantastic. I thank you for that, Maria. Could you could you share another story? Um, yeah, I would love to. And I think this affects, you know, I mean, certainly most people around my age. I'm, I'm 60 now. So I'm looking back to then 
you know, coming out of childhood into my late teens, into my 20s and beginning to go into workplaces and, you know, find my place in the world. And um, and I think it's true for everyone who was around in the sort of 60s and 70s and, and even into the 80s that, you know, there were cultural jokes. There were jokes around particular groups of people or particular races or particular colours or particular religions. Um, and we thought nothing of telling those jokes. In fact, it was a way of bonding with, you know, in inverted commas, like-minded people that we could, um, we could pick on a race or a culture or a uh, an affliction or, you know, a personality trait or something. You could pick on something and you could make jokes about it over and over and over and over again. And the level to which that reinforces something. And even though, you know, you would make jokes against a particular race and it's just not good enough to say, well, it doesn't have an effect on me because, you know, I've got friends of that race. That's just, that's still not good enough. Um, it's then, interesting you say that because I'm just thinking, I mean, I, unlike you, I grew up in India, uh, born and brought up in India, but this is not a phenomenon that is specific mm -hmm. to the United Kingdom. And I remember when I first arrived in London where, where there were these jokes, cultural jokes about these Scots, the Irish, the Welsh and the English. And I, for the life of me, I can't remember which one is which. You know, somebody is a drunk and someone is stingy or whatever it might be. It's similar in India, which is, of course, a much bigger country in size and many more places, their states. But the Bengali is like so and the Punjabi is like so. And, and that's exactly what I grew up in. And so what's that about then, do you think, in terms of unconscious biases? So for me, I think that is around um, finding your tribe and finding your like-minded people so that you can share these jokes, these stories, these um, humiliations and ridicules of other people. So you can say, well, you know, we're all right. You know, here we are in our little huddle. Um, and of course, nobody's doing that consciously. It's, mm. it's for me, these things are all about really at the bottom, it, looking for safety. So, so when I'm thinking about that, it's a cultural uh, way of communicating that is now being addressed in, in, in today's world that we live in. But were you ever at the receiving end? Oh, well, that's a really, that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting question. Um, because at the very personal level, at that very individual level, there was only ever once in my life where I was personally attacked and felt frightened. And I was 14. I was on holiday in um, Ireland. I, you know, I have I then, I mean, I've got grey hair now, but then I had a very dark Mediterranean look. And um, I was with a group of people my own age and somehow some argument broke out over something and I don't really remember what it was. And it, and it had nothing to do with me. And I just remember this moment in which suddenly this group of people who, you know, belong there and I didn't belong there, turned on me and they all started pointing at me and going, 
what's this got to do with you, you effing Egyptian? Go back home, you Egyptian. And it was a real moment of absolute fear and terror, but it, it informed so much for me. And, and especially as I got into, you know, alternative ways of being in the world, such as nonviolence and nonviolent communication and restorative justice and restorative practices, you know, I can still go back to that and say, you know, I never want any human being to ever, ever feel that. That must have been such a powerful, frightening, you know, moment in your life. You know, you 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 know, you you said, you know, it's many years since you were fourteen years old, but it's so deeply embedded within you um, that particular f- emotion and feeling and experience. And to some degree, I imagine that has influenced you, uh, without con- not consciously, unconsciously influenced you in the direction that you are in terms of the work that you do. I think it, I definitely think it has, and also, you know when I contemplate that, you know, in, in the grand scheme of the world, it's such a minor incident. I mean, no physical violence was visited on me. It was a moment of just feeling scared and powerless. Um, but I didn't actually come to any real physical harm. But, the you know, the, con- the context for me of the, the absolute... Uh, uh, deepness of the hurt and the emotion and thinking oh my god other people go through so much worse on an absolute daily basis all over the world and I you know and I never want anyone to feel that and and the learning and the growth and the rate at which you know this is kind of very steep learning curve of unraveling my own contribution to, to, to visiting that on other people indirectly has been huge. And so when you said to me, you know, have I been on the receiving end? That's probably the one time in my life that I've experienced it directly. But indirectly, I mean, just trying to be a woman in business, you know. I'm smiling into, when you say that. I went into the workplace at 17, 18, 19, and it was, we didn't have, sexual harassment you went into the workplace as a woman and you expected that parts of your body were going to be grabbed stroked touched that you were going to be the the on the receiving end of sexual innuendo but not specifically one person me being singled out that this was just our normal um and so yes so i've been on the receiving end of that i even remember one job where um, someone had put me forward for a job and said, um, you know, and was trying to sort of coach me for the interview. And then she asked me what religion I was. And I said, oh, well, I'm, I'm not really any religion, but I was brought up Catholic. And she said, oh, well, you know, the company is really Catholic. So you want to bring that out in the interview because it will really stand you in good stead. And, you know, <laughs> These are these are these are things that have just gone on and are still going on. Well, that's and, um, the thing. But no, I, but I, I I want to I want to pull us back to 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 my introduction of you, Maria, because I'm sure the listeners would want to know more about the work that you do in terms of, and and I'm sure when when you when you start sharing your stories around that, what that looked like looks like in terms of unconscious bias. So, you you work with the Center for Peaceful Solutions. You work for nonviolent communication. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, people in India will know exactly what that means. 
because Gandhi uh, uh, was the person who kind of started the whole idea of nonviolent communication, as, as you probably know. Mm. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and how and what kind of work you do? And I'm sure within that we can talk about stories of unconscious bias. Yeah, thank you. Um, so it's very broad. Um, and I suppose if I were really thinking about this of, of you know, what is it I do, I'm, I'm really interested in social change. I'm really interested in social transformation. And I'm really interested in our mainstream systems in society, which I call domination culture. And in domination culture, is a hierarchical system where there's always someone further up the food chain that can punish you and tell you what's right or wrong or whether you're good or bad. And I'm really interested in principles of nonviolence and restorative justice. And so I see myself as someone who uses a nonviolent approach to provide an alternative to the indoctrination of domination culture and, 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 and even as a disruptor, I guess. So can and you the, please give us an example? Because I think I, I, for, for us to understand it better, what, is, what does that look like? Can you give us a case study, a story maybe? Yeah, so I'm, I'm particularly proud of a project that I've been doing in a prison in the UK for the last four years, um, up until sort of COVID restrictions. Um, and... I went into this prison that had, you know, certainly a reputation for for violence and for disruption in the prison. And I was determined to work with a senior management team that understood that this wasn't just about reforming the prisoners. This was about changing the system. So if you want to you know, if you really want to go to one of the most punitive places you can find in our society, then, you you know, prison is it. I, I <laughs> a conversation for another time, but I say that schools are a very close second, but let's not have that conversation. Conversation today. for another time, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm. But um, so what I, my proposition was that if you have 650 prisoners and you have a staff including civilian staff totaling around 150, surely it would make sense to hand some of the responsibility for safety in that community to the 650 that live there day and night. And of course, you know, that is such a leap for a system that believes it's punishing murderers and rapists and thieves. And one of the things that I'm really interested in is these labels that we give people. And so we can call someone a murderer. And what we're doing is we're defining a whole person's life by one act. And that doesn't allow for the fact that that person may have done an enormous amount of other stuff that is completely unrelated to to, to anything that creates injury, loss or harm. That's beautiful. And so, and so that's, you know, I'm using a really extreme example, but calling someone a murderer 
is no different to calling someone autistic or calling somebody an Italian or, you know, because what you're doing is you're defining an entire human being by a label. And I'm, I'm not a label. No human being is a label. There may be attributes, there may be things I've done that make up part of me and that calling me Maltese or calling me autistic or calling me um, a murderer may be one element, a shorthand for one part of my life and things that I may have done. In the same way as we can give someone a knighthood and find that, you know, that doesn't mean that every single thing they've ever done in their life is in the light. I was just thinking of, of a Walt Whitman quote that you, you might know where he says, I am large, I contain multitudes. Mm. And, and that's, we are all nuanced. We are human beings who have multi-layers and, and we're very nuanced human beings and we are not defined by one thing. And, and, and I think what you've said is very powerful because it's not just about stamping one thing on them and then making them all about that one thing. It is about not being able to see beyond that. Um, and everything we discuss with or about them is seen under the headline of that one stamp. Yeah. So that is the power of our unconscious bias, which is, which is really beautifully said because we have all done it. Uh, we have all done it. I mean, I remember, just, just want to share a, a quick story mm. with you. A long time ago now, I remember my son had a very good friend, Ben, uh, has a very good friend, Ben, should I say, and they had known each other for years. And it was after they knew each other for a very long time, for some reason, because it was contextual, I, I realized that Ben is gay. And I remember saying to my son, huh? but how come you never told me Ben is gay? He said, why do you need to know? Mm -hmm. And that was so powerful. This is a very old story now probably, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years ago. But that was so powerful then. That was a life lesson for me about defining people because one aspect of what makes them different. I mean, who cares what his sexuality is? <laughs> He's yeah. a friend. End of story. You know, is he a good friend? Will he be there for you? And you hang out together? You know, those those are the things I need to know. So, yes. so, so. What you're saying, whether it's murder or whether it's sexuality, whether it's Maltese, it's, 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 it's irrelevant. It's about how we, we just put people, we put a stamp on them with one word or one letter mm. or one something to define them. And then, of course, that's what they become rather than a person, you know, I am large, I contain multitudes. So thank you. Thank you so much for that, Maria. Uh, yeah. Something else that you might be able to share with us? Um, I, well, one of the things I wanted to do was just complete the loop on the prison project. Oh, please do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, please um, do. Because we started that and then we didn't really finish it. So, um, so to complete the loop on the on the on the prison project, you know, where, you know, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of struggle. There's been a lot of dialogue. There's been a lot of resistance. There's been a lot of um, uh, uh, optimism. But where we ended up by adopting this approach of saying, you know, it, we're all humans together. And what we really want in a prison is safety. A prison cannot operate if there isn't safety as a first basic human need. And so what we've ended up with is 25 prisoners 
trained in the communications model I created called the Dialogue Roadmap, who are facilitators. So these are prisoners who are facilitating processes for other prisoners who are in conflict, struggling with mental health issues or addictions or self-harm or have problems with their family on the outside and allowing those prisoners who may have murdered somebody, who may have um, committed rape, who may have committed fraud, but allowing those prisoners to find other parts of themselves in which they can be of service to other people in the prison who are struggling. And we took that prison from having problems to being one of the safest jails in the prison estate. That's such a brilliant story because, because what you are doing, if we think about it in terms of the headline of unconscious bias, is that you are asking people, the prisoners themselves, to challenge their own unconscious biases and the people who perceive them within the prison about what they think of them, you know, the stamp that you and I were just talking about, uh, and challenging their unconscious biases about that person because he or she did X, Y, or Z. And then within that challenging and self-reflection, getting them to, to, to be in an area that is considered a safer place for them. I mean, that's just, that's a great story. Thank you for that, Maria. It's an amazing project. And I think, you know, I'm proud of the work I and the people that have been helped. And I'm particularly proud of the idea of 25 men in the worst place they could possibly find themselves in prison, who've committed different types of crimes and will therefore and are from different backgrounds and different cultures, different faith groups, um, sitting in a room as a team of 25 and having to work it out amongst Brilliant. themselves to be able to operate as a cohesive team Brilliant. in order to be of service to others. So, yes, they have had to challenge their own. I had to challenge my unconscious biases around, you know, do I want to sit in a room with somebody who has, uh, you know, um, offend, made, committed offences that are sexual towards children? And then they've had to challenge their own unconscious bias because these are people that on the outside would never have met each other or had anything to do with each other. Yeah, this is brilliant. I love it. I mean, it, 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 it's, you know, so many different aspects of, of how they and you and all the people connected with this project are challenging their unconscious bias. That's great, Maria. Any other story that you could share with us? Oh, there are... There are there are so many, I bet. But, I think, but I think I think where I'd what I'd like to think about is um, I'd like to think about you know the global network of um, uh, uh, NVC you know because it is a global network and how moved and touched I am for us as a global network to be really thinking about this topic of unconscious bias and how we can model something for other organisations and for other communities in terms of really stripping away the layers and having those authentic conversations as we listen to voices from people from the global south and, and how do we bring them into the community when 
um, you know, in the global north, we value money. And all of those kinds of conversations that I'm really proud to be part of. I mean, would you say that we are in a fairly divisive society in the West or perhaps the world over where we, you know, where are things going in terms of nonviolent communication, do you think? Um, I think the political landscape of the last few years have put us in a position where we have never been more divided. Never been more divided. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the way I see it, and of course, this is just my opinion, that some of the ways in which people want to be heard are still using the domination culture system of punishment, blame, uh, uh, and making other people wrong. And I just can't see how that's going to take us to where we need to get to. So, Maria, I mean, you've had some incredible experiences. You've been doing this for at least 20 years uh, and you've been working not just in the UK, but also in the US. Are there any huge cultural differences when we talk about nonviolent communication and peaceful solutions and so on? Or, or is it same old? I mean, that's just how it is, wherever you are. Uh, I think that what I think that, you know, of course, there are sort of superficial cultural differences um, in as much as one of the things that's very noticeable is that because in the UK, um, we have a welfare system and an NHS system. And I know that people complain about it. But what that means is the poorest people in society still have access to, to proper health care and, um, and to some kind of state benefits. Um, and so what I noticed is that in the US where people don't have the same kind of access, the, the state of the people in poverty in the US looks to me to be greater than the state of the poverty in the UK. Not that you can draw comparisons, but I, I, do, I do notice a disparity. Um, mm. But at the end of the day, the truth is all human beings, it doesn't matter where you've come from, what you've done, what religion you believe in, you know, what job you do, what side of the law you're on, you know, it really doesn't matter. All human beings have a heart. And the key to this is unlocking our hearts. And I have to unlock my heart first. And when I unlock my heart, other people will unlock their heart. And at that point, we can begin the dialogue. Oh, that's beautiful. That is so beautiful. That's how you challenge your unconscious biases, by unlocking your heart so that other people can unlock theirs. And then you build up a trust that is so moving and really wonderful. Maria, Maria Arpa, thank you so much for sharing your stories of unconscious bias. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure and I've really enjoyed the quality of your questions and your facilitation. Thank you, Smitha. Thank you, Maria. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please do share with someone. That's the best promotion the podcast can have. The more we hear these amazing and brave stories from speakers around the world, the more we can learn about this important subject of unconscious bias.
I'm Smitha Tharoor. See you next week.